Well, four days ago, about 200 or so of you, members of our Grace Point family, gathered together here for our Ash Wednesday service, curated by Pastor Melissa, and it was lovely. It really was a special time, begotten, beloved of stardust. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning, as you know, of the 40 days of Lent, or we call it the Lenten season. These 40 days, for those that didn't grow up in high church backgrounds and aren't familiar, these 40 days are the 40 non-Sunday days leading up to Easter. There are six what is called little Easter's in this 47-day stretch between Ash Wednesday and Easter, and these six little Easter's are not counted as a part of Lent. These are the days that traditionally we would break our fast and, uh, and we would uh, not do the Lenten process, but we would celebrate a sense of resurrection. So uh, there's a 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter minus the Sundays, and that period has been a curiosity to a lot of us. It's been a blessing to many. It's been a non-event for others. And I want to look a little bit at the season that we're moving into. Uh, people say, well, where did we come up with the idea of Lent? You know, that's something that you have like in your pocket, right? Lent or down in your shoes. What, where does the word come from? It's actually, it derives from an Anglo-Saxon word, Lenten. Uh, we would spell that L-E-N-C-T-E-N. -E it's an old Anglo word. And that's the word that actually in seven, eight hundred years ago meant spring. The English word Lent actually derives from Lincoln, that old word. And the word developed because the spring season was the season when the daylight hours naturally elongated. And so there was a, a lengthening of days, a lengthening of days. And it was during the spring season, the Lincoln season, that the religious season of Lent also occurred as the space before Easter. So it just kind of naturally adapted that idea of Lincoln or lengthening. And I personally think, I was thinking about this week, I think that this association of lengthening or expanding in association with religious or spiritual practice, I, I think is an apt one. Because I think all spiritual practice I mean, this is a spiritual practice, gathering at church, an Ash Wednesday service. Any spiritual practice, baptism, singing of songs, prayers. Uh, Nina, I just went out and Nina and two of her buddies at 10.08 were 20 feet up a tree down in the ditch. And as I got them to climb carefully in her dress down the tree, um, with the two boys standing at the bottom looking up. Um, they're prepubescent, I think it was safe. But as, as I got them to come in, and I wasn't excoriating them, but I took her back and I said, you know, you guys are supposed to be in church. And she said, you know, we decided. <laughs> she said, you know, we decided that, that we would start service today. Just like that. She said, we would start service today in nature because we think there's really no better place to be than in nature. So the Greek for that is BS. So just in case you didn't know, it's a, it's a short little two letter word. But the reality, so she was doing a spiritual practice. The reality is any spiritual practice, whether it's being in nature or singing a song should be let me just think about it. It should be lengthening in nature. When spiritual practices start causing you to contract, we talked about this last week, when spiritual practices start causing you to contract or shorten or you feel diminished, then you need to step back. I mean, don't quit church. Don't quit synagogue. Don't quit it, whatever it is that you do, but look at it and say, why is this drying up for me? Because the reality is, uh, as, as a matter of fact, this very point is why a lot of people are no longer, no longer taking part in organized religion. Um, there's a lot of people who just on, the, on, the, on these grounds no longer take part in organized spiritual practice. Uh, tradition of any kind, whether it's baptism or communion or ashes, 
on the forehead. Someone told me Wednesday night that they just didn't take communion because it just is going the opposite direction for them. No matter all of our explanations in tow. The reality is for a lot of people, church, temple, mosque, synagogue, spiritual practices no longer stretch them. Some even claim the systems constrict them. And I just say each to their own journey. For most of us though, or we wouldn't be here because I don't think there's a, a big sense of obligation unless it's familial marital obligation that drives most of us here. I personally still find that there is not any part of my life. I don't immediately have to go to a biblical text to figure out why I come to church. Frankly, there's really not any part of my life that is not aided and benefited by doing it in community. Whether that's health, art, athletics, hobbies, you know, academics. I am a communal person and I think most of us are communal and community still aids my spirituality. So church for me is not born of some legalistic obligation. And, and church community is not pared down to some tribal tradition that I cannot sentimentally extract myself from. It's just not. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, it's your vocation. You've, you've got to do that. And I, and I get that. And I've had to look at that nine ways to Sunday for sure. But I think underneath it all, if I didn't do this for a living, I would still be here in some sense with you. For me, church, spiritual community, spiritual practices like Ash Wednesday service is just another way my very human need for community is expressed. And a part of that humanity is, I like doing spiritual practices. I'm going to do the practice with um, the folk who were up here earlier. These, these uh, ladies have got a beautiful service divine. I'm going to do that because I think it will be an advantage to me. Uh, I, I, I practice spirituality with people. I practice the spirituality of my humanity in community, concertedly, intentionally with you. Today, at 4 o'clock, I'm going to take Nina to a practice. It's her first softball practice of the spring season. She's a part of a team. There will be camaraderie, and they are a part of a big association, East Williamson Athletic Association. So I believe in community. So uh, the point of that is, between now and April 16th, that's Easter. Between now and April 16th, I'm going to be doing, to some degree or another... I'm going to be doing Lent with you, good people. And that means two things for me, again. Number one, I wouldn't be doing Lent. I mean, as progressives, this is the stuff the pastors sit around and talk about. Are we going to do Lent this year? Does it carry more baggage or does it carry more equity? That's always the question. And we've decided that Lent carries equity more so than baggage. I believe Lent is a worthwhile and beneficial practice. I, I, I don't have a lot of space left in my life for meaningless obligation of any kind, much less religious. Second thing is, as I just stated, I believe life should be shared and done together and so that's why I'm doing Lent with you and you're doing it with me. So the question then begs, I'm trying to set up these next seven weeks because these are important weeks. The question begs, what exactly are we doing for that space between now and April 16th? Well, council and the pastors have gotten together and we've decided that this season for Lent we're going to give up all sexual practice as a church. No, I'm just kidding about that. That, that, was, a, that was a joke. Uh, we don't decide for you what you do, what you give up or add. Some of you are like, so what? Um, anyway, um, we don't decide what you do for the Lenten season. But, but the question still begs, what are we doing as a church together for Lent? And, and maybe a bigger question than what is Lent and what is this space that we're taking together? It's funny, some of you from Pentecostal Baptist backgrounds, uh, Church of Christ backgrounds, you have no concept of Lent because you never did it. Others of you that grew up Lutheran, Presbyterian, and Catholic, you have no concept of it because you did it so much. I mean, you can come from two different directions to that kind of inadequacy of spirit if you're not careful. But what is Lent and why do we do Lent? 
Well, back in the first three centuries of the church, there was a sense as we look at history that preparation for the Easter feast was always a space. Uh, it wasn't a large space, but we go back as far to like heroes of the faith like Saint Irenaeus of Lyons, France. Irenaeus is one of the biggies, top five guys in the second century of the church. He lived from 140 to I think like 202 and he's just a, a masterful theologian. But in one of his writings, he alluded to the fact there was a 40-hour preparation before Easter. Not 40 days, but there was 40 hours set aside to prepare for Easter. I think the first reference to Lent as a 40-day season was in the Council of Nicaea, 325. That huge council of the church said there should be a 40-day time of preparation. They called it the Lenten period, and that was established and accepted. Uh, really universally as a church by the end of the fourth century. In the early development of this 40-day period, when you're looking back historically, and some people don't care about this stuff, others think it's fascinating, I'm one of the latter. Early on, the season of Lent was associated with baptism because Easter was the feast of baptism. By about the end of the third century, beginning of the fourth century, Easter began to be the, the season when converts to the faith, because infant baptism prevailed throughout the church, but converts, adult converts to the faith would save up. These celebrants would save up and they would all be baptized together at Easter. Now that wasn't always the case, but by the middle of the third century that was dominantly the case. One of the things that drove that was a, a strange thing happened at the end of the third, beginning of the fourth century the Christian church became the church of the empire. And the Christian church shifted from being a, I mean, the middle of the third, third century, there was a pogrom so pervasive uh, that it, it, it literally rivaled any, uh, any pogrom, any um, human, what, do you, what would you refer, what is a pogrom? Like the Holocaust, where entire groups of people are wiped out. There was a huge one in the middle of the third century. But by the end of the third century, with the advent of Constantine to the throne, all of a sudden this group of martyred, tortured people became the in-group. And Christianity became the, the organized religion of the empire. So it really was a whiplash of sorts psychologically and spiritually because we went from being this tortured group of people at times. It wasn't just Christianity. It was any aberrant religion to the empire's religion. But all of a sudden we, we went from being in the catacombs to being in the palace and we didn't know what to do with that. It was a strange thing. Christianity had always cost people dearly, even their life. And now to be a part of the empire, if you weren't Christian, was a disadvantage. So guess what you have now? You, you not only have people being martyred and, and maybe fleeing the faith because of its high cost, now you have people in scads getting their card punched to be Christians because it was advantageous to be in the faith. And some of those that thought more deeply about these things were bothered that people were swan diving into the baptismal font. And they were bothered that this bread and wine that once meant so much and cost so dearly was now being gobbled down like Tic Tacs and Skittles. And so they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If you're going to be baptized, don't just get baptized to be a part of a group and serve your business desires and needs. Baptism is still a significant question asked by a significant person, Jesus, can you be baptized with the baptism wherewith I'm baptized? Can you live this life? Baptism is important. So that's why they really associate a baptism with Easter and they set aside the 40 days before to just really explore with people, do you know what you're doing here and are you doing it meaningfully? So that's where the season of Lent came from. And then it's morphed into, you know, a lot of different practices and customs since then. Traditionally, at the heart of Lenten journey, then, Lent is about a season of conversion. I'm talking from our tradition now. Lent is a season for baptism or conversion. Specifically, undergirding this entire season of Lent is the idea, undergirding it and overarching it is the idea of repentance. 
All right? Repentance. Lent is about repentance. Now, I want to stop and, and just explore this for a moment because repentance admittedly is one of those religious words, one of those words in our lexicon or glossary of terms that is problematic or troublesome for some of us. How many of you have grown up with a preacher leaning across the pulpit with a frown on his or her face saying you got to repent? How many of you have grown up hearing repent, repentance, and repenting as words that have moved into the pejorative and accrued a lot of negative baggage for you? Many of you have. Remember, when I say it's one of our religious words, every specific religion, while it might share denominators, common denominators with other religions, every specific religion has three categories of distinctives. Every religion, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism, has a distinct narrative or story. It has a distinct vocabulary of terms, glossary or lexicon, and it has a distinct set of symbols and sacraments. And repentance, I mean, certainly there can be overlap between religions, and repentance is one of those words that carries weight in a lot of religions. But the bottom line is, if you call yourself Christian, repentance is a big word in our vocabulary. For Christians, these words, for myself, have been a constant part of my life, our life, our thinking, and our conversation. For good or bad, and for me, in some very troubling and unsettling ways. I remember, I've, I've told the story before, when my dad and I were driving down the road. We were on Nolansville Road, right in front of the big church where you get to Old Hickory Boulevard. I'll never forget it. And I had been getting on to Stan Jr. He was sitting in the back seat. He was four years old. And I was really getting on to him about something. He hadn't cleaned his room. And my dad decided to jump in, helping like a grandpa can. And my dad began to explain to Stan the different, or what a sinner was. And uh, we come from that background where you do things wrong, you're a sinner. And, and, and my dad described what a sinner was. And, and Stan Jr. was still curious. And Stan Jr. asked a question, well, well Pop... But, but what do you mean? And Pop, my dad said, well, son, a sinner is somebody who doesn't listen to their parents, doesn't make his bed and pick up his room, and complains about the food that they try to feed him. I remember everything went quiet. We drove a little further, and all of a sudden this little voice came, voice, a voice came from the back seat. Stan Jr. said, Pop. My dad said, yeah, son. He said, I'm a sinner. And I remember at first we chuckled, kind of like you guys did, but then it, it didn't settle. And it didn't even settle with my dad. My dad knew. Oh, not so much. And my dad then began to explain what a righteous person was and what a Christian was. And after a little while trying to convince Stan Jr. he was a Christian, I remember uh, my pop said, so you're not a sinner, you're, you're a Christian. Stan Jr. sat there for a little while, and I'll never forget it. And he spoke up again. He said, no, Pop, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I've thought it through, and I think I'm a sinner. Remember, part of what it means to be progressive in spiritual practice is our belief that life is always evolving, including religious practice and ideas. The progressive part of progressive Christianity says that spiritual practice, beliefs, religion, all of life is always evolving, growing, and progressing, lengthening, if you will. That means that all of our institutions, all of our ideas, all of the attendant practices that come with them, including things like repentance, all of these things should be constantly open to both reform all of these things should be open to growth. All of these things should continually. And Ash Wednesday service. I mean, Mel labored hard. I remember when she, the other day was, I, I was in the office and she had gold glitter. And I was watching her work with this gold glitter. And I finally realized that she was putting gold glitter in the ashes. And there was a part of me, you know that old religious part of you that cries, foul because you don't tamper it I mean that's like taking Reese's peanut butter cups and coca-cola for communion you can't mess with the elements right and yet this is exactly the tension 
that progressives face in any religion, in any setting. We are continually looking, saying that the things we do, we have seriously considered discarding them all, right? You don't get to this level of exploration and not think, have I gone too far? Have I crossed the Rubicon? Am I beyond the boundary? But upon seriously considering, you step back and you say, no, this is my people, this is my family. These practices are a sufficient base from which I can do spirituality. Only if these practices, only if these ideas, only if these things fit within the bounds of continued reform, growth, correction, and expansion. To that end, words like repentance are not just meaningless arrangements of letters. Words, if they are truly nomenclature, if they're not just babble, words serve us by representing realities or things. And progressives are constantly revisiting these realities and things that words are symbolizing and pointing to. And progressives are continually bringing these things like repentance. This is our season here. At Advent, we will bring ideas like the coming of the Lord and the kingdom of God to this process. But now, we bring repentance and we subject it to the positive scrutiny of examination and exploration. Please know this about progressives. We do not believe it's truth that changes. We believe we change. And while we don't believe that truth, eternal truth change, what we do believe is they unfold. And progressives believe in an unfolding nature of truth and we also believe that no generation yet has finalized that process. So we bring the shoulders and the accrued wealth of wisdom of the ages. We are deeply committed to tradition. But our deepest commitment to tradition is to not stop the process, but continue the process that developed even that which we call tradition. Most of what we call tradition at some point was martyred as heresy. And we bring that to the laboratory of faith. We believe, we believe that things like repentance should be respected. We believe these words should be stated. Seasons like Lent should be observed. But we also believe they should be subjected to investigation, inquiry, knowing that the science of religion does not change what is, but reveals it. We didn't create the laws of thermodynamics. We uncovered or discovered them. The elemental chart is what we founded, not the elements. We did not create the arrangement of their neutrons, protons, and electrons. We simply discovered and mapped those things. So as we begin this season of Lent, this is what I wanted to do today. As we begin this season of Lent, let's discover Lent. Let's uncover Lent. Let's take the coverings of time, presupposition, bias and all of the layers of tradition off of this thing, this reality we call repentance. And as we uncover, dis, discard the covers on repenting and explore it a bit, let's keep our heart open. Take a moment here and just do that personally with our own stories. I would ask for a show of hands, but I don't think I need to. I, I know that most of us in this room grew up with repenting and repentance as a significant part of your religious life. I don't know. I look at you guys, Baptist, Church of Christ, Presbyterian, Catholic. As, as a young man raised in a subculture of the church, in the taxonomy of, of, of Christianity, there's Christianity, Protestant, um, Reform, Lutheran, Wesleyan, Methodist, Nazarene, Pentecostal, Apostolic. So way down at the genus species of faith, I was a, a, a oneness Pentecostal kid. And in our movement, there was a six-step process for securing your eternal destiny. A six-step process for 
salvation. Think about yours for a minute. How many steps did you have? Baptists are all like, one. <laughs> right? Um, Church of Christ, Mary, you guys had, was it six? You guys had six. Yep. You guys were baptismal regeneration just like we were. Six, let me tell you what our six were. And this is just me, but think about yours. Ours was you had to believe. Step two was you had to repent. Step three was you had to be water baptized. This is where we had the Church of Christ. We believed in double baptismal regeneration. Y'all had water baptism. We also believed you then had to be baptized by the Spirit. Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was a necessary step. So that was step four, receiving the Holy Spirit. And it had to be accompanied by tongue speaking. We were different than most Pentecostals. Most Pentecostals believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was wonderful but not necessary to go to heaven. It was kind of like a turbocharge on an already good engine. Gave you about 60 extra horsepower. But that wasn't our group. You had to speak in tongues. I remember poor old Mr. McElwain at our church literally went to the altar every service for 30 years. And he never spoke in tongues. And we buried that good man lost. So it was a, it was a, it was a tight ship these steps so you believed you repented you got baptized you received the Holy Spirit you say well what's after that then you persevered in holiness that's step five you say well what more could you do than persevere in holiness well you can't persevere very well in holiness so the sixth step is you repent all the dadgum time right some of you remember that feeling so the sixth step was this gift called repentance that admitted the fifth step was going to be done imperfectly and admitted that the fourth step of the Holy Spirit come in could be dicey because if you don't keep clean, he, is always a he, is going to be leaving you, right? So there was a six-step process. So for me, repentance was step two and step six of what my eternal destiny hinged on. And it was a big part of my religious experience. I remember as a child carrying that feeling that Stan Jr. had for just a little bit uh, of being a sinner. I remember that ominous feeling. When I was 10 years old, 10 years old, and, you know, I mean, just imagine a 10-year-old child. The, I, I performed well what was expected of me, not as a performance, but I believe that God expected it. But as a 10-year-old, I went to the altar one night, and I, I think I leaned across that old wooden altar and wept and poured my heart out and explained to God everything I had ever done for more than an hour. And, you know, again, you can laud that, but, but there's a way of stepping back and saying, is that, is that, and you don't want to call it abuse, but it comes close. And 10-year-old children have that kind of onus on them. That was repentance for me. But that wasn't really the heavy part of repentance. The heavy part of repentance, I, I'm just telling you, I got a heavy load with this word repentance. Poured my heart out. And for the next year, I got baptized quickly because that one I could control. But for the next year, I went to the altar trying to speak in tongues because I did not want to go to hell. And for a year, I, I went, I labored, I, I prayed, I tried to speak in tongues, and I couldn't. I know this is so strange for some of you to hear, but we all have our religious experiences. And I remember finally one night after about a year of tearing and seeking that, as an 11, I was now 11, I went to the altar, draped myself across the altar, and I stayed there for, I guess it was more than three hours. I mean, what's happening in the psyche of an 11-year-old child in that process? I stayed there and I said, God, I'm not leaving. You can kill me. Literally said it, you can kill me, but I'm not leaving. Somewhere around 11 o'clock that night, my chin began to quiver and I began to do something that they said was speaking in tongues. And it's not that I don't believe that you could have that phenomenal experience, but... Looking back, it does not feel like a phenomenal experience. I feel like my little psyche broke. I disassociated. And people cheered, and that was... <laughs> a lot of theology is autobiography. You see why I do what I do? 
You see why I love helping people get away from a fear-based view of God? Because I had that in spades. But then you start trying to live holy, and then you start losing God. So repentance became this part of my life. So for anybody who would say, well, let's don't drag up these old words and these old ideas like Lent and repentance. Well, I'm just saying, if I can believe they can be dusted off and revivified, and we can progress with them, then anybody can. Because repentance, Lee, became that thing that I did every night from the time I was 11 till I was in my mid-30s, where at the end of the day, I begged God to forgive me for all the things I had done and didn't know I had done, and even I could not go to sleep because somehow part of my theology was the rapture of the church was going to happen when we were all sleeping, right? I didn't know how that worked out for the folk on the other side of the world, but for us. And so every night I would pray that God would forgive me. And I had a long, I had a lot of consternation around, can God forgive things that you don't specify? So the only way I could cover that was, I would say, God, forgive me for the things I didn't do. And if you really need me to say them specifically, please remind me of them. I'm game. I'll do anything. That wasn't just 11. That was 35. That was, I carried that as kind of a subconscious reflex into even the early years of pastoring this church. It was, just, it was just kind of an insurance policy, Doug, you throw out there at the end of the night, just in case. Just in case. So, if we step back for a moment from, from all of the baggage we have with repentance, it's interesting, and I was going to read it, but we don't have time to read it today. We'll read it later in the, in the series, but I was... I was going to read Matthew 4, 1 through 11 because that's the lectionary reading for today. So this is the first Sunday of Lent and the text is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You guys, a lot of you know that text. It's where Jesus was just baptized at the end of chapter 3 and the Spirit, Sandy, drives him into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. That's kind of where we get the 40 days. This 40-day thing, there's a lot of numerology in Scripture, there's a lot of numerology in ancient religion and we certainly carried it into our faith. 40 days in the wilderness by Jesus, 40 days on the mountain by Moses. There's a lot of 40-day stuff in Scripture. And so Jesus, as the, as the new covenant, Moses goes into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days. And from that, we get this idea of 40 days for the season of Lent. The reality is the wilderness experience for Jesus has a lot of application to the Lenten season, not specifically to the idea of repentance, because very Interestingly, while the Christian church for the 2,000 years so far of our faith, the Christian church so far has always said the major temptation for every human is sin. And the major thing that we need to repent of is sin. And yet we carry the basic theology that Jesus was not a sinner and he never sinned and yet he was tempted to sin. Interestingly, Dale, Jesus' temptation was not sin at all. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't tempted by sin, but the temptation of the wilderness had nothing to do with sin. Remember, the first thing that the serpent, or, or Satan says, and I said the serpent because it really is a replay of the Genesis 1 story. That's the way religious mythology develops. Religious stories, historical events mixed with tradition, and we blend them together. And the serpent in the garden is now Satan in the wilderness, and modern Christians might say this is the ego or the false self, whatever you call it, it's insidious. And Jesus is wet with the waters of baptism. The Spirit has just descended upon him and the Eternal Father has said in front of a bunch of people, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And there's a lot in that. This is not at the end of his ministry after he's walked on water and healed dead people. This is not after the Sermon on the Mount and all of his great parables. This is before he's done one thing. And the Father does not say, this is my beloved Son by whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is intrinsically beloved, which is what Mel was trying well to say Wednesday night. We are intrinsically beloved. It is not something we achieve and it's not something we maintain by telling God how awful we are all the time. It is who we are. And he carries that into the wilderness and he is tempted not to hook up with a prostitute, 
not to find drugs and get high on a binge and all the other proverbial sins, cliched sins that we think about, but he gets into the wilderness and the first thing he hears is a voice in his ear and my God, I've heard that voice that said, if you are the beloved son of God, turn this stone into bread. And the bottom line is turning stone into bread is not a sin. He took baskets of loaves and fishes and he did magic with them. He was doing magic all the time with the natural resources that were given him. Turning stone into bread to feed yourself is not a sin in the Jewish mitzvot. I'll tell you what it is though. It is a temptation to shame. The temptation of Jesus was not about sin, it was about shame. And so it is with all of us. Sin is not the primary human frail condition. It is not the primary human pathology. Sin is the secondary pathology. The primary pathology is identity and remembering and forgetting who we are. And the serpent's voice did not pick a sin for Jesus to commit. It struck at the core of who he was. And the serpent said, if you are indeed the beloved son of God, perform, pull a rabbit out of a hat to justify that identity. Because until you can do things like turn a stone into bread or buy that car or live in that zip code or have that job or make that salary or be with that person or wear those clothes, because until you can perform at a certain level, you do not merit that intrinsic beloved begotten from stardust moniker. So the temptation was not about sin, the temptation was about shame. You say, well, you don't believe in sin? Of course I do. I do it all the time. No, I don't mean that. I do it sometime. Not the ones you're thinking about. I do some. But sin is the secondary condition. And if you fall prey to shame, you are a sucker for sin. But if you resist the temptation of shame, you'll be amazed at how sin takes care of itself and how healthy you actually end up living. So the story of the wilderness temptation is freighted with lots of material. But for us today, the major issue, and I'm going to close here in a couple of minutes and just stop right in the middle of this thing and pick up next week. But the major point of that story is that the Lenten process is a journey. The point of a journey is that you move from one place to another desired place, presumably an even more desirable place. That's the journey. This is saying that even Jesus, our great guide, to get where he was going had to go through a committed process. And by whatever measuring stick a journey is measured by, I tell you, it is not simply the time that the journey took. It's not about the 40. But the measuring stick of a journey is where it finally led you, as well as the experiences that you accrued along the way. So if we get from the story today in the lectionary, at least that Lent is a journey, the question then is what is the purpose of that journey? Where is it supposed to move us and where are we going to be April 16th when we stand here with all of our church in a triple size service? And what is supposed to happen along the way to us? Well, to answer that question and to close this service, we have to back up to this past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. In the lectionary, there are a lot of scriptures variously used for Ash Wednesday, but there is one quintessential text that most clearly announces the season that we call Lent and it's in Mark 1, 14 through 15 and Rich, I'd love for you guys to put these two verses up we'll close with this this is the formative quintessential text for the season of Lent this is undergirding everything Mel curated we sang and we did Wednesday night and for the next 40 days after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. 
And Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. For 2,000 years the church has used this text and centrally this word, repent. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. We like to call that the beloved community because in the last 2,000 years we have realized there's a lot about kingdoms that really does not represent the heart of God. Kingdoms and oligarchies and patri patriarchy. But something big has happened. The beloved community, Jesus said, is right here. So here's what you need to do. You need to repent and you need to accept the good news. You need to become aware, and I'm just trying to ask, is this still relevant 2,000 years later? Can I appropriate this in any way? Something big is happening around us. This is a pivotal, consequential time. And we dare not miss it. We dare not bury our head in the sands with apathy or indifference. Something big is here. Can I relate to that? Yes. Repent. Can I relate to that? Well, that's where I get shaky because I remember that little boy begging God to please be magnanimous enough to let me off the hook. And then feeling a ton of dirt guilt when I did the same thing again four days later. But can I hear Jesus in this Lenten season say, repent? I think I can. And finally, say that to truly repent may be absolutely the next statement or request. And that is to believe the good news. If this season is indeed a season of repentance, then for the next few weeks we're going to explore what does repentance mean. And I can tell you as we close today, repentance means a whole lot more than little boys and old boys feeling bad because they did something wrong. Repentance is a lot richer, Lee, it's a lot deeper than even expressing publicly my regret for what I've done. And repentance is more than me simply making a resolution to do better in the future. At the heart of repentance, even the original biblical idea that we so often lose is the simple idea of having my mind or my thinking changed long before it is a change of activity. Regardless of whether your mind changes about a sin or shame or whatever it is, at its heart, repentance is the idea of having my mind changed or my thinking changed. Or more emotively, please hear me. A more emotive way of describing this with perhaps more intensity Repentance is the ability to have your heart transformed. Repentance is the ability of human beings who are headed down a path, the ability to be arrested and stop and reconsider, to have our minds, our hearts, and ultimately our lives renewed and reshaped. That is why in the New Testament repentance and conversion are virtually synonymous because a mind or a heart when it is so radically changed that a person changes their entire way of being or at least great parts of it there's almost no way to see that kind of a radical shift other than that person has been converted. That person has undergone a conversion, a transformation. So over the next several weeks, as we put tears on trees and water trees and see life and develop hope because there is something ominous here and there is a good news to believe and we have a part in that. Our lives matter. 
We are going to focus not on the religious word and all of the baggage of repent, repentance and Lent, but we're going to focus on the thing that these activities, these, the activity that these words represent. We are going to explore the anatomy of mind changing, the anatomy of heart transforming. And I want to ask everybody in this room these questions. Is it possible? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? How does it happen that we have our minds changed? Why does it happen? I want to explore the psychology, the science, which is the same thing for me as saying the spirituality of changing our minds. There is so much here. I want to explore what Jesus meant and what is our 21st century takeaway for the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe good news. And I want to interact with you. And I send you home with this homework. When was the last time you had your mind changed? When was the last time you had the very real profound experience of being arrested on the road and having a light shine round about you to the point that you cannot take another step in that direction? Have you ever had your mind radically changed? When's the last time I had my mind changed? This morning. I told Michael and Hutch and Nina we're going to Brugger's and they talked me into Krispy Kreme because they're all round and they have a hole in the middle so it's the same nutritionally, right? The last time I didn't have my mind changed was last night as we were working on bed arrangements and Michael and Hutch were getting in one bed and I said, Nina, now where do you want to sleep? And she said, I'm just going to sleep with them. No, no, you're not going to sleep with Michael and Hutch, I said, and they bartered and bartered and my mind was not changed. Sometime you need to change your mind, sometime you don't. <laughs> How does your mind changing generally happen for you? Is it slow and gradual or an aha? What generally is required to change your mind? Husbands, wives, families, what doesn't work? Why do you change your mind? And if you do change your mind, who is the you that is changing your mind? You changed your mind. Who's that you? What's the difference between you and your mind? Is there a difference between your mind and your brain? When we say soul, spirit, ego, false self, heart, mind, brain, what are the differences? What role does civil public discourse and the fair exchange of ideas play in changing your mind? And what role do experiences play in changing your mind? Hebrews 12:17 says there was a guy named Esau who was the brother of Jacob. And Esau took a spiritual commodity called a birthright within the bounds of his faith. And he took that birthright and for a morsel of food and a hungry belly, he twitted it away. He bartered it away and for a bowl of porridge, he gave up something dear to him. Hebrews 12 reflected back in good Jewish Midrash form and the church reflected back and the writer of Hebrews, we think it may have been a woman, actually said, you know, Esau was a profane man. And I want to tell you what profanity is per her definition. Esau was a profane man and it had nothing to do with sex and lewdness and debauchery. He was a profane man. Chris, it says that literally after he made that horrible trade of something temporary that titillated the physical being for something that was deep and abiding and eternal. After he made that deal, he was profane because he went out and he looked for a place to repent and he couldn't find one. And I want to say this, we will never get progressive enough that we do not need what the word repentance is pointing to. Because profanity consists mainly of this, being incapable of finding a place in your soul to repent. I used to hear that, Rachel, all my life I heard that. We grew up in the same world. I grew up, he, he looked for a place to repent and couldn't find one. I thought that meant he was going out saying, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. And God was saying, no. 
The scripture did not say that at all. It didn't say that he looked for forgiveness and couldn't find it. You can always find forgiveness. Come home. Joel, he didn't look for a place of forgiveness. He could have found that. He looked for a capacity to repent and he couldn't find it. Forgiveness is when you're looking in the heart of God and your loved ones. You'll always find it there, at least with God. Repentance is when you're looking in your own spiritual capacity for the ability to change. And brothers and sisters, we are profane. In politics and religion, we are profane when we dig our heels into our, our own biases and traditions, shut our minds down, and say, this is what I want, this is what I believe, and nobody is going to change me. That is profanity. And over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about the, psychologi the psychological benefit, the spiritual benefit of not being Esau, but having a space in our souls always capable of repenting and changing our minds. That's the season of Lent. Can you say amen to that? Let's bow our heads. Mel, come and close us out, but let's just bow our heads for just a moment. Sweet Christ, you love us well and you teach us well. Your temptation, your wilderness journey, and even your ability to repent. <laughs> what a brilliant book we have in the Hebrew Scriptures. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a God there that is often repenting. Wow. That used to bother me so much, God, that you were depicted as repenting. I am very grateful now. And I am dismayed if I have leaders and gods who can't repent. May every president, governor, senator, mayor, pastor, council member, husband, father, mother, May we all have the godly capacity to change our minds. May it be so in this Lenten season, we pray in Christ's name. God's people said, amen.